From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Climate disruption is already creating winners and losers in the world's economies. Some of the colder parts of the world have actually likely benefited from this warming. They've warmed up a little bit and actually become more productive. We see that pretty clearly in the data. The hotter parts of the world have had the opposite effect. They've actually experienced declines in their economic productivity. Also, a Goldman Prize winner says protecting nature is worth the ultimate sacrifice. If no one is prepared to lay their life down, to fight to preserve Mother Nature, to protect this planet, to ensure that generation unborn will come and have a safe and healthy environment. If the world and the planet is now worth a battle, what else are you prepared to give your life up for? We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The sharpest increases in global average temperatures have come since the 1950s. And it turns out, for the short term, that's good for business in the richer parts of the world, which happen to be cooler. But on the other hand, the poorer countries in the hotter parts of the world have seen their economies grow slower, or in some cases even decline, as the planet has warmed. In other words, climate change is worsening global economic inequality. This is according to a recent study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences by Noah Diffenbaugh and Marshall Burke. And Marshall Burke, who is an assistant professor of earth science at Stanford University, joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for having me. So let's start by having you briefly summarize the results of your study. Sure. So what this study looks at is the overall economic impact of the global warming that we've already seen over the last half century. So We often think of global warming as something that's going to happen in the future, but it turns out the world has already been warming due to anthropogenic or human-caused influence. And so what we wanted to understand in this study is what has been the impact of the warming that we've already seen? Has this done anything to economies around the world? And what we found is that indeed it has, and it turns out that Some of the colder parts of the world have actually likely benefited from this warming. They've warmed up a little bit and actually become more productive. We see that pretty clearly in the data. The hotter parts of the world have had the opposite effect. They've actually experienced declines in their economic productivity. So most of the rich countries in the world happen to be cold. Most of the poor countries in the world happen to be hot. So if the cold countries are benefited, and the hot countries are harmed, then you get an increase in global economic inequality. And that's the main finding of our study. Give me a couple of numbers here. How did this decrease the wealth of the world's poorest countries? And what's the gap between the group of nations with the highest and lowest economic output per person? Sure. So we should be clear that we're thinking about, and your listeners should have in mind, two different worlds. The world that we experienced that warmed up roughly half a degree or a degree over the last half century And we want to compare that to a world that did not warm up by that much, where the temperature was fixed at pre-1950s levels. So compare two worlds, one that warmed and one that didn't. And we're saying, all right, what's this economic wedge between those two worlds? And what we find is that in poor countries, their economies might be 20% smaller today than they would have been had we not experienced the warming we did. So one of the rather disturbing aspects of your results is that at least with a modest amount of warming, it benefits the richer countries to the detriment 
of poorer countries. And in a funny kind of way, a little bit of warming is good for business for rich folks. We do indeed find that. So if you're in the colder parts of the world, we do see fairly clear evidence that their economies are more productive when the earth warms up a little bit. If you look around the world, like let's take the coldest places in the world and let's take the hottest places in the world. So take Antarctica versus the Sahara, right? We don't produce anything in Antarctica. It's too cold. We don't produce anything in the Sahara. It's too hot. But warm up a little bit, the northern reaches of Russia, we start to see some economic production, right? Similarly with Sahara, cool it off a little bit, we start to see more economic production. So our basic findings are built on this insight that if you're really cold to start with, if you warm up a little bit, that could benefit you. If you're really hot to start with, you see the opposite effect. It's likely to harm you. And you're absolutely right that in colder countries, Scandinavia, Russia, Canada being good examples, if you warm it up a little bit, we see clear historical evidence that this has small but meaningful benefits in these economies. And then looking over the horizon at the much larger increases that are being forecast, uh, if we continue with business as usual, even if we get the brakes on climate disruption, things are likely to, A, get really bad for those poor countries. But how far is it to say that the richer countries will start to maybe see their, their economic advantage here start to diminish as well? Yeah, I think that's right. So what we see in the historical data is it looks like there's an optimal temperature for economic production. So again, if you look at data from around the world, from all countries in the world over the last half century, what these data tell you is that somewhere between 10 and 15 degrees Celsius seems like the best temperature for producing things. That's just where we're at our most productive. And no coincidence, if you just look in the U.S., some of our most productive areas or cities fall right in that window. So Boston, Massachusetts, where you guys are, that annual average temperature is something like 11 degrees Celsius, which is, I don't know, about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Bay Area, where we are, is about 13 degrees Celsius or 55 degrees Fahrenheit. And that actually, we find, is the global optimum temperature for producing things. The Goldilocks range, huh? The Goldilocks range. That's exactly it. So what that means is you take a place like the Bay Area and you warm it up three or four degrees or five degrees, as you say, like we're going to get in the future, that's going to push us off this optimum. And that's going to likely generate, especially over the long haul, pretty negative impacts on our economic productivity. What countries seem to be getting hit the hardest economically by climate change based on this research? So the countries hit the hardest are the countries with the highest annual average temperatures right now. So this is a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, parts of South Asia and Southeast Asia. In our analysis, these would be the countries that have suffered the most so far under the increases in temperature that we've seen. Again, many of these countries have performed reasonably well economically. Southeast Asia has grown quickly. South Asia recently has grown quickly. Parts of Sub-Saharan Africa are growing quickly. So climate is not the whole story here, but what our evidence suggests is these countries would have done even better had it not been for the warming that we've seen over the last few decades. What relationship, of any, might there be between those temperatures and the difficulties in places like Guatemala and Honduras and even parts of Mexico that are contributing to the outflow of people from those countries? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's pretty strong evidence in the literature that, again, if you're in a pretty hot place to start with, you increase the temperature, you often see substantial outmigration from those countries. And this has been shown in Latin America. It's been shown in Sub-Saharan Africa, which, again, I think is very consistent with your question, Steve. So you, you crank up the temperature, people are less productive and they want to go somewhere else where they can be more productive, right? And so in Latin America or Central America, they often go north 
Sub-Saharan Africa, they go north as well. So you see a large increase in the number of asylum applications in the EU, for instance, in years in which Sub-Saharan Africa is hotter than it normally is. How do you think your research affects the perceptions of the difficulties of poor countries dealing with climate disruption? Well, our hope is that it puts numbers on this very important issue. I mean, I think a lot of people have the intuition that poor countries are likely the most harmed by changes in climate. But to make informed policy decisions, we really need numbers around that. How much harm has already occurred? How much harm might happen in the future, right? We need to know the size of the problem before we can figure out how to allocate resources to address the problem. So what our study does and what studies like this do is put numbers on it. And again, the hope is that this will inform better policy decisions about what sort of agreements we should come up with, what sort of financial transfers need to be made from rich countries to poor countries. Now, what optimism do you have for this trend, for this disparity between rich and poor nations with the force of climate disruption changing things? What optimism do you have for this trend to turn around? One point of optimism is the success that many developing countries have had in recent years in developing their economies. Some of the fastest growth rates in the world or most of the fastest growing economies in the world are in the developing world right now. China being the best historical example, but many other countries have performed similarly over the last few decades. And so I think that's the biggest source of optimism. A lot of these economies are growing pretty quickly, even in sub-Saharan Africa, which for decades experienced very slow or even negative economic growth. Many of these countries are growing quite rapidly. And again, that has nothing to do with climate change, right? Those are things that are happening completely separate from anything going on in the climate system. Where I'm less optimistic is in what future changes in climate are going to do to those trajectories. Again, it's climate is not destiny. It's unlikely that climate is going to completely reverse the progress that we've seen. But our results and our research would suggest it could slow it down substantially, right? And so these places might keep developing, but they will do so much more slowly than they would have otherwise. You can imagine it as someone running into a headwind, right? They're still making forward progress, but they're making much less forward progress than they would have had the wind been at their back, as it has been in many wealthier countries. Marshall Burke is the Deputy Director of Food Security and the Environment at Stanford University. Thanks for talking with us, Marshall. Thanks a lot, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Let's take a look beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. He's on the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. What do you have for us today? We're going to start by talking about an immense court judgment $2 billion, billion with a B, against Monsanto for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma caused to a husband and wife allegedly by Monsanto's pesticide herbicide called Roundup with the key ingredient glyphosate. Now, of course, Monsanto was bought up by Bayer, and I gather that this lawsuit and others is causing them, well, <laughs> a headache. It's really serious for a mega pharmaceutical and chemical company like Bayer or Bayer, as it's known in its native Germany. And since the Monsanto merger a little bit more than a year ago, Bayer has lost an estimated 44% of its stock value, uh, virtually all of that attributable to the vulnerability to herbicide lawsuits. And just how many of those herbicide lawsuits are, are out there? Right now, there are literally thousands of lawsuits being filed against Monsanto and Bayer for uh, alleged harm from glyphosate, the key ingredient in Roundup. 
But Peter, there's dispute over whether Roundup causes cancer, isn't there? It's a mixed verdict right now. The U.S. EPA has said that they could find no link between glyphosate and lymphoma. However, the World Health Organization of the United Nations lists glyphosate as a probable carcinogen. Okay, so what else have you found? We have a redefinition of a term that was really popular on American TV about 20 years ago. And of course, I'm referring to the word butthead, but we're not talking about the Beavis and Butthead character. The city of Montreal has redefined the name and concept for anybody who throws cigarette butts in the street as a butthead in a major new marketing campaign to clean up a real public nuisance. Well, so how big a deal are cigarette butts in Montreal? Um, They measured how many uh, uh, cigarette butts they picked up and cleaned off the streets over a six-month period. It was half a million cigarette butts. That's enough to fill 92 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And, of course, once they get in the waste stream, they can wind up in the ocean. They can wind up in the ocean, and even before they wind up in the ocean, research shows that cigarette butts contain lead and arsenic in some cases. And the reason uh, that they're on cigarettes is to try and uh, filter out some of the bad stuff, and that includes other carcinogens like benzene. Oh, my. So what are smokers supposed to do with their butts? Uh, Well, the first thing, having lost my dad and my sister to lung cancer, is maybe not smoke. And uh, the second thing is, if you do smoke, deal with them responsibly, uh, which means put them in a garbage can after they're fully extinguished. All right, let's look back in history, Peter. Um, What do you have for us today? We'll go back to May 25th, 1958. President Eisenhower is in a TV studio in Denver, Colorado. He theatrically waves a magic wand and a couple thousand miles away in Shippingport, Pennsylvania, the first U.S. commercial nuclear power plant is dedicated. And what happened to that plant? Well, it, it ran until 1989. It's been decommissioned. It provided power for some in the Pittsburgh area for many years. Uh, It was based uh, and modeled after the reactors already in use by the U.S. Navy and nuclear submarines and also in aircraft carriers, all designed by the notoriously quirky Admiral Hyman Rickover. Of course, naval reactors, those on boats, would have a natural emergency backup in case of a meltdown the entire ocean. Uh, Right, and shipping port had only the Ohio River, and it was uh, surrounded by uh, cities like Pittsburgh upstream, and Cincinnati and Louisville downstream. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Thank you. And there's more on our website, Living on Earth. It's loe.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Chickens put a lot of energy into producing strong eggshells, and there are ways to reuse them. They can add calcium to compost, and in the garden, they're supposed to deter slugs. And as Bird Notes Michael Stein reports, You can even recycle them for wild birds, especially in springtime. Birds' eggs are among nature's most elegant creations, but they're not easy to make. 
This American robin will lay one egg per day for three to four days. To make her eggs, the female robin has to use a great deal of calcium. But she can't just pour herself a nice big glass of milk. She has to find her calcium in nature, and it can be tough to find enough. But we can help. During the nesting season, we can give the birds that visit our homes some of that crucial calcium. Start off by putting calcium-enriched seed and suet in your bird feeders. For the many species that don't eat seed or suet, like robins, you can give them leftover chicken eggshells instead. Rinse the shells off in the sink, spread them out on a cookie sheet, and bake them in the oven at about 250 degrees for 10 minutes. You just want the shells to dry, not brown. When you're done, crush them up. Crushed eggshells can be mixed with bird seed and set out in a feeding tray or scattered right on the open ground. And remember, always wash your hands after handling raw eggs. I'm Michael Stein. The winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize each year are nothing if not courageous. Many risk their lives to protect endangered species, rare natural resources, and indigenous land rights. Lawyer and human rights advocate Alfred Brownell of Liberia is the 2019 Africa recipient for his work to save over 800,000 acres of Liberia's upper Guinean rainforest from development into massive palm oil plantations. This rainforest and carbon sink is the largest in the region and nicknamed the lungs of West and North Africa. It's a biodiversity hotspot and home to many indigenous people. Attorney Brownell's conservation efforts nearly cost him his life as he battled Liberian government officials and the palm oil company Golden Verolium Liberia. And after he found a way to block the financing of the project, he was forced to flee with his family to the United States, where he is now serving as the Distinguished Scholar at Northeastern University School of Law in Boston. Alfred Brownell joins me now in the Living on Earth studios. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've risked your life to protect this forest. Please tell us why you were willing to risk everything to guard it against the palm oil plantation, folks. What more of an honor it is to fight for this planet, to fight for this forest, to fight for a way of life of people who are preserving it. It's a life worth giving. If no one is prepared to lay their life down to fight to preserve Mother Nature, to protect this planet, to ensure that generation unborn will come and have a safe and healthy environment and clean water, and soil that is not poisoned by agrochemicals, and species in the demison that are protected that allow for generations unborn to perpetuate and continue yourself. If you are not able to give your life for that, then I don't know what cause you are able to stand up for. So I think I was always prepared to give that life, and even now I'm prepared to do that. The sort of threat we now face because of the way our forests and landscape are being destroyed that is now warming our planet, that is now creating the sort of challenges that the world now faces. Drought, flood, forest fires, mass migration, poverty, and conflicts. 
if the world and the planet is now worth a battle, if you are not able to stand up and allow yourself to be counted and put your life on the line to fight for that, what else are you prepared to give your life up for? What is the meaning of your life? What is the meaning of your purpose on this planet? Locally, in Liberia, why is the conservation of the upper Ghanaian forest essential to the preservation of the local people who are there, the, the indigenous folks who are there in their culture? If you flew over Liberia, all you see is the vast expanse of forest. It's like you are flying over an ocean of trees, grain and cover. It's actually one of the wonders of the world to just see a continuous span of trees going over. And all that one would feel and think is that these are just trees, and below them, these are just animals. But the forest is also the home to indigenous people. It represents their history, their culture, their tradition, their way of life. They refer to the forest as their supermarket. It's where they go and get the food. They refer to the forest as their pharmacy. It's where they go and have medicinal plants. They refer to the forest as their universities. This is where they teach the young people about the way of the tribes and the culture, how to become farmers and sustainable farmers, how to develop indigenous business enterprises. So over the years, they've learned how to coexist their livelihood with nature in a very sustainable way. That's why this forest is important. But much more than then, this is the last refuge of what West Africa once used to look like. If you went back into times in West Africa, it was completely green across the entire region. Completely green. It was completely blanketed in green forests. The only portion of that blanket of forests in that entire region is what we now have in Liberia. It's the only intact forest. In other countries, they are all fragmented. So that's why it's important to protect this forest. It's the largest carbon sink in all of North and West Africa. So when you got concerned about this in a public way, what happened when you started speaking out against the Golden Rolium Liberia Company? These are the folks that want to do uh, palm oil plantations. And you uh, used your training as an attorney to, to launch a legal advocacy campaign against that firm. What happened to you? <laughs> well, of course they were not happy. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar investment that has come. And um, the government of Liberia had signed away a massive amount of land. Think about that. 350,000 hectares of forest land. That's almost like almost uh, 800,000 acres of land to this company. Um, the government had not consulted the communities. The government had not even gone to do any kind of mapping of the land area. You know, it's how, you know, sometimes elite in many other countries, you know, don't have respect for locals who have lived around this land and just give her this land to this company. And they went ahead and, you know, said, well, we have authority from your government and we're going to take the land. And so they evict folks and clear away the land. And so when my attention was drawn to what was happening and I went and I saw what has happened, I was shocked because I had seen entire towns and villages completely bulldozed by these companies. I have seen streams and creek poison. I have seen people, shrines, religious sites, their gods, desecrated. I have seen people, burial grounds, 
of their great warriors, the tribal chiefs, those who establish the towns and villages. And like in the U.S., it's like talking about someone going in and desecrating the graves of, what's the first president? George Washington. George Washington. And I'm wondering what the Americans will say about that. Or it's like to the African-American, someone going and trying to desecrate the grave of Martin Luther King. What would they say about that? This is what these communities were doing to those people. The entire history, the entire value, their way of life, their culture, their very essence, what made them indigenous people, was under a threat and attacked by the spam companies. So what did you do? So I had to act. So the first thing we did was, well, we felt maybe this was being done out of ignorance. Maybe there wasn't awareness. The government didn't know about this. So at their local levels in their regions, we informed the local authorities, government officials. We moved them to the cities. We went from ministries and agencies of the government to complain. We organized massive press conferences to draw attention. No one cared. They were in deal with the companies and were still carrying on the destruction. So we're talking about the motivation of money here. Absolutely. This was not a venture that was intended to fail. It was too big to fail. This was intended to transform Liberia into a desert of oil palm. So how to find a way to organize? The plan was to challenge just the grain of the rights on the basis that the government of Liberia had no authority to give the least whole right to a transnational corporation on land that indigenous people had existed on and occupy even before the existence of Liberia. But how do you stop that? I mean, if the government is going to rule on any complaint that you bring forward, they're in charge of this process. Absolutely. Given how the government was involved in this process, and given that they ignore all of the pleas that we made, we felt that if we had gone to court, we probably wouldn't have prevailed. So what's the answer? And then a friend of mine said, well, you know, Gordon Verodum is a member of an international consortium called the Round Table on Sustainable Palm Oil, which is a certification body to ensure that palm companies will engage in the sustainable production and marketing of oil palm. So your strategy is this palm oil company needs to certify their palm oil as sustainable because there are great concerns about this from Indonesia to West Africa. And so you went to this certification agency to tell them, uh-uh, this ain't sustainable. But certification is not just about a labor that we give to them. You have to understand what that labor means to the companies that are involved in the production. Okay, what does it mean? Because given what has happened in South Asia, given the alarming nature of how palm oil companies have operated in Indonesia and Malaysia and the impact on the forest and the species in the orangutan, it's created an alarm, it's created a concern among activists, environmentalists and social activists and among consumers and the demand for more sustainability. So it meant that many palm companies were not even having the financing to engage in production and to engage in the marketing. So they needed this labor to show to the banks, to investors, to shareholders, to their suppliers, to the consumers, that indeed they can get the financing to do this. And so we filed a complaint. We actually said we are open to an independent assessment and verification 
of the allegations we made, and they took the bait. Ooh, so yes. they came and investigated. Of course. So and, they, they, and they found? And they found that we were right. Every single bit. This is very important for our audience to understand what this is. Because sometimes many folks will pitch this as development. How come poor villagers living in misery and poverty will have concerns about a multi-billion dollar investment coming to their communities? Why are they opposing that? Don't they want a better way of life? But what many people don't understand is how this occurred on the ground. So imagine Golden Verhoeven, for example, a multi-billion dollar, the second largest palm person in the world, going to poor villages. These villagers, before the palm came, had their own palm. They had an indigenous palm. They had their food crops. And the company wanted that. So the women, for example, have planted oranges that they will sell every year during the harvest. An orange tree will produce anywhere from between 8 to 12 bags of oranges. A bag of orange will sell for 10 US dollars. So if a lady was able to harvest a tree of oranges, and had 12 bags, it meant that she had 120 US dollars in her pocket. She would have that to support she and her family and her kids. The oil palm companies came and they didn't want that. They took away that tree. And guess how much they paid this woman? Um, nothing. 20 US dollars per tree. Per tree. Not even the economic or market value. So, what development is that that will further impoverize people who already, out of their bootstrap, have engaged into entrepreneurial activities. And so we had to act. And so when those were established, the round tables of Snow Palm where I wrote them and said, you have to stop further clearing, further development, and sit down and negotiate with these villagers. We're speaking with attorney Alfred Brownell, Goldman Environmental Prize winner from Liberia. And we'll be right back with his story of protecting West Africa's largest old-growth forest after the break. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. We continue our conversation now with Alfred Brownell, the Goldman Environmental Prize winner from Africa who saved West Africa's largest rainforest from palm oil development. In the middle of the fight, the palm oil company allegedly tried to have Attorney Brownell killed. They tried to, they tried to assassinate me, um, you know, um, the, the private securities. And this is very emotional. Tell me this story. What happens? Talk to me about the day that you understood that the assassins were coming for you. What happened that day? You really want to hear this story? Yes, people should know. It's very personal. It's very personal. But you know... As a defender, I also know that there are many others who were not lucky like me to be sitting down before you to tell this story. Many of my people, the communities I come from, as environmental and land rights defenders, have paid the ultimate price and bowed down and gone to see their ancestors, people like Bertha and others, Ken Sarawiwa and others, who have died. And so in as much as this is very painful, I've actually made a commitment that I can be their voice to keep air cooling or what, what this really is, the danger that defenders are facing. So as you will know, they were very angry. Um, now they have the stop order. 
and a round table on sustainable palm oil had instructed them to sit down and negotiate, develop a work plan, and obtain the consent of communities. Um, so they figure out that, well, this certification body is based in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. We are in Liberia in remote villages. We can ignore what they said and continue to do this. So part of our job was to investigate their compliance with this order. So when they told them to stop, they did not stop. They continued to take the land. They built much more strong relationship with the government. They pressured the government to put more pressure on us. So that's where the threats started coming in from the government to us. That's where we're being labeled as anti-country, anti-development, anti-investment. My very citizenship was being questioned. That was not a patriotic Liberian. How dare I challenge an investment that was building infrastructure and generated revenue and created employment. But we kept reporting back to the certification body that Gordon Verulam was not following the order. And so they organized the first fact-finding mission ever done by the round of snow palm oil to a country to ensure that one of its members was actually following their instructions. So when the team came to Liberia, we took them to a place called Tajuan in Sino County. It was, in fact, an area where, after the stop order was issued, Gordon Ferreira had identified that they would build a mill. It was on a hill, which was referred to as Pala Hill. This was a shrine, a religious site of the global people in Sino Tajuan, the indigenous people who every year would go and pray and pay homage to their ancestors. It was so revealed. It was so sacred. And this was where the company decided that they would make it the site for their mills. And so the local decided to show this to the fact for animation. So we went in and we proved, we actually met the hive moving equipment that were tearing down these shrines. And when I turned around, I looked at these community people, some folks just dropped on the soil. People were just crying. They were just crying. They just couldn't believe that their religious side, their shrine, had been completely torn apart. So unknown to us while we were doing that inspection and assessment, Gordon Verulam and maybe some actors in the government had decided that, well, we had already gone too far. And that would have been the last day I was taking my breath. And so on our way back, as we came out of the operational area, we entered a town called Sonua Town. We came across a group of men, and there was a massive roadblock. They had logs on the road. And then our cars were all surrounded by these men. And they were going around shouting, where's the lawyer? Where's this lawyer? We are looking for Brunel. Where's the lawyer? They were looking. So they were searching for me. And one of the guys said, yes, Brunel. And then there was a shout from the crowd. They were so happy that they found their prayer. And then, you know, they started threatening and trying to open the car doors, trying to puncture the tire, knocking the glass. These men were all dressed in the company uniform. They had the coats. They had the working tools from the company. And they started dancing. Well, today is the last day. They were happy. Then I noticed that some other folks were sharing alcohol. So folks started to drink. They started to beat drums. And then some folks started to put chalk. It turned to a war dance. In Liberia, they have the traditional war dance where the tribes would do. You put chalk on your face. Chalk on your face. And uh, some of the leaders came to the car and said, well, you know, today is going to be your end. 
you're never going to stop this company anymore. You know, we are going to, to eat your heart. We're going to take off your heart and eat it. And uh, then someone said, in fact, my boss man is waiting for your score. You know, he's going to turn it to a mark. He's going to drink his palm wine from your score. And we're just being taunted back and forth. They were dancing. And uh, it was not easy. The colleagues who were in my car had all, like, given up. Um, some of the folks in the vehicle had already fainted. So I didn't know what to do. I just kept praying what would happen. And I was just waiting for my time. Then I said, well, let's get the chief. Now, this local chief was actually on the side of the company. We knew that he was one of the persons who was being paid by the company. It meant that if he gave his order, it meant that that was the end for us. So they went and they brought the chief. And he reached to my vehicle and he knocked my windshield and said, roll down and I roll down. And the chief said, are you Mr. Brunel? I said, yes, I am, sir. He looked at me and he said, these people want to kill you, but I'm the chief. I don't know how this is going to happen. And he turned around and said, He told them, he told them, I'm not going to let you kill this man here. I'm not going to let you kill him. This blood must not waste on my land. This blood must not waste on my land. If you want to kill him, take him to another town, but I am not going to allow you to kill him, and this blood will not be on my land. Then a young man who stood by him was very angry. Then he assaulted the chief and hit the chief. Then some of the young people from the village got angry that the chief had been assaulted. And then there was conflict. The chief said, oh, so you insulted me. Then I'm going to remove the roadblock and this is where I'm going to go. And, you know, they went and they were fretting over the laws, trying to move that. And then we managed to, to flee the area. And we went to another village where we were stopping, a place called Butor, where we started the original campaign. And the company guys tried to chase out there, and the Butor people came and said, we're not going to allow you to touch our lawyer. And we stayed there for like five days, protected by the indigenous people. Every night, the movement from one hut to the other hut. In the night, people who don't know who they were would come with trust asking questions, trying to locate me. But the tribes protected me throughout that time. And then they found a way to provide safety along the road back to the city. And we went, we came back to the city, we complained. We issued press statement. A couple of months later, my office strangely buckled I had electronic gadgets in my office. No one bothered to take them away. There were DVDs and phones, cell phones. I even had some money, some uh, petty cash on my desk. No one took the money. What did they steal? Documents, financial records. Then I started observing strange vehicles following me. And then um, five years of bank records from my organization was taken. There were stories written to the media saying that uh, I was corrupt, that I was using donor money to create slush funds for myself. 
But I continued to persevere. And to be honest with you, I felt that it was worth the fight. It was worth the battle. And like I told you earlier on, that even if I faced that same attack again, I would go on. I'm embarrassed when I have to tell this story. Why? Because it makes me look like I'm weak. Courage is weak? But I feel that it's important for the world to hear it. Because like I said before, I'm lucky to live, but I want the rest of the world to know what this is about. That an ingredient that you wouldn't even notice if you walk into your supermarket or to your grocery store, or you bought a bottle of soap, or you bought chewies, or you went into McDonald's and you bought your fast food, or you went to Kentucky Fry and took your fries and your chickens, or if you're someone who loves lipsticks, who know about buying lipsticks, or you who love ice creams, you have no ideas that oil palm is all over you. It's all over you. And while you are enjoying this, both beautifying yourself and enjoying the flavor that it brings and the happiness and joy that it brings to you and your family on this side of the wall, it was ruining destructions on another side of the wall. So while you are beautifying yourself as a lady, there were women who were being flogged, who were being stripped naked and thrown in prison. There were the history, there was the culture, there was the religion, there were the shrines of people who were being desecrated. This is what the palm oil was doing to that country. So ultimately, of course, you felt that you had to leave, that it was just too much for your family and yourself, and you came to the United States. But I imagine that the Liberian government is still trying to pursue this deal, uh, still trying to pursue palm oil development and other threats to the upper Ghanaian forest. So now, from here in America, what, what kinds of legal or political strategies do you think could be used to, to protect the forest now from this development? Well, um, so sometimes folks believe that they are threatening you. And maybe that's how the government of Liberia and the palm communists felt. When I left Liberia, they felt they had won a victory. We've now removed him, and we can do business as usual. But I think now they realize it was the biggest mistake in their life. Because? But it was here in the U.S. It was here at Northeastern University School of Law. When I came, and Northeastern University offered me a refuge and gave me a platform, a desk to continue my work in dignity. That's the idea. When you go into exile, you lose everything. I left Liberia just in one suit. The day my office was attacked by the police on a raid, I was not able to go back to my office, neither to my home. My family left in just the clothes they had on. I had to grab my kids. Friends have to help me to take my wife and my kid along with me all of the country and quickly fly me into a third country before I came to the U.S. But here in the U.S., in the Northeastern, I had a platform. I had a group of students who was involved in my research, who were supporting me with research. I had professors who were assisting me. I had an office. I had 24-hour electricity. I had 24-hour fast-speed internet. So you can tell the story. So I could sit down and tell the story. I could sit down and continue to put pressure on the certification body. It was here that when the company launched it, appealed against our complaint that they lost. Because it put a lot of pressure on them. And so it was in August of 2018, a year and a half later, 
of sustained engagement, both supporting the communities directly in Liberia from a platform here in the U.S., using WhatsApp and other social media, working directly with the coalition health office that were able to counter the appeal, and we won. And it is from here that we'll continue pursuing those cases to make sure that they are not going to take away that forest. Alfred Brownell is the founder and lead campaigner of Green Advocates International and this year's recipient of the African part of the Goldman Environmental Prize. Professor Brownell, congratulations and thanks for coming by. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Dandelions are one of the surest signs of spring and a promise of summer. They can also be a nuisance if you're working on a perfectly manicured lawn. But one person's grass-choking weed can be another's culinary delight. Anne Murray of the public radio program The Allegheny Front has this story on one longtime dandelion-loving grandma. I don't think you should walk over there. Oh, I can do it. Come on, buddy. This afternoon, 97-year-old Virginia Dobell, a.k.a. Grammy, will not be deterred by some uneven ground and wild grasses. She's doing what she's done for the past 90 years, gathering the season's first batch of dandelion greens for dinner. Look at this. This is like a bed of them. So this looks promising. Yes, and if you tell me they're all red, uh, probably fate. Red stem dandelions are a no-no for connoisseurs like Grammy. If it's red, does it tell you that, that it's a, a bad taste? That is, uh, they're very, very bitter. Okay, gotta have my knife, toots. Grammy's grandson, Chris Fetter, pulls out a small kitchen knife from a paper bag. With considerable effort, Grammy hangs on her cane, bends over, and starts cutting a big dandelion out of the ground. But you always leave the base of the dandelion on, like so. So what do you actually eat here? What, what part are we looking for to eat? Right there. She points at the long, light green, almost white dandelion stems and spines. They come in the tall grass, and they're about that tall. They're the yum yum ones. Grammy should know. She's been rounding up dandelions since she was seven. Back then, it wasn't just for fun. She and her big family depended on dandelions and potatoes for food all spring and summer, just like the European settlers who brought the dandelion over here to fill out their poultry diet. The roots contain taroxacine, which stimulates digestion, and the leaves are full of vitamin A and D. Today, Grammy's passing on the tradition to Chris. You have to cut all the way around them. And a boy, so if you pull them out, you're in trouble. <laughs> I didn't do too good on that one. It's a white one, see? Now you're talking sense. While Chris cuts dozens of plants, Grammy tells me some dandelion picking stories. On one of her first excursions, her brother followed her to the family's apple orchard. So he gets in a tree, hides. When I get all my dandelions that I think that's going to do us for supper, I start for the house. And all of a sudden, out of the tree he came, grabbed my bag, and spread the dandelions all along the way. Oh, what a dirty trick. (laughs) 
Yes, a dirty trick it was. Dirty tricks aside, Grammy's been making dandelion salads for years. Back in her apartment, she thumbs through the well-worn cookbook her mother passed on to her in 1925. In the margin, her mom's written very good next to the recipe for hot dandelion dressing. Of course, the first thing we do is fry the bacon and make that real nice crisp. While Grammy gets the bacon going, Chris chops the dandelion greens. Do you want to leave the leaves long, Grammy, or do you want them? No, cut them in sort of in half so they're, you know, easy to eat. After they finish up, they pull out a big pan and mix in milk, eggs, a little flour, and lots of vinegar. Tell me one. That's good enough. Then they pour the concoction in with hot bacon grease. And we keep stirring, stirring, stirring. Now we're going to put it on the salad and just wish and wish and wish. Okay, it is ready. Just in time for Sunday dinner, the table's set, and Chris and his mom, Gloria, let Grammy take the first bite of dandelion salad. <laughs> oh, it is good. <laughs> All right, that's especially good. Good job, Grammy. This is Ann Murray. Oh, heavenly days. Ann Murray's profile of Grammy comes to us by way of the Pennsylvania public radio program, The Allegheny Front. For Grammy's dandelion recipe for hot dandelion salad dressing, Check out the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Joseph Winters, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth. And you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI, Public Radio International.